Friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ, I bring you greetings from Arlington Baptist Church in Arlington, Virginia. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning. I'm grateful to be a co-laborer in the good news with your pastor. Uh, Adam and I are a part of a fellowship of ministers that meets regularly together, and it's always a privilege uh, to learn from him about how to better shepherd Christ's flock. Um, Before we begin, I just want to pray one more time for us. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to believe, and Father, we pray and ask that you would give us a will to obey, attend the preaching of your word with your Holy Spirit for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Christmas according to Exodus. What on earth is he thinking? Uh, You you might be saying to yourself, it is the most wonderful time of the year, the time when we celebrate Jesus' birth and this Yahoo is preaching from the Old Testament. Well, why preach through Exodus at the beginning of the Christmas season or or begin preaching from the beginning of Exodus? It's my conviction that the Bible is a great story. Indeed, it is the greatest story ever written or told. It is not merely the greatest story ever told because it is so well written, although that is undoubtedly true. It is also not merely the greatest story ever told because in its light, every human being can understand their own life story. It's not merely the greatest story ever told because it helps us to understand why the history of the world has followed the trajectory it has, and because it tells us where world history is headed. These truths are undoubtedly a part of why the Bible is the greatest story ever told, but ultimately, the Bible is the greatest story ever written and told because it is true, and because The good news that the Bible story communicates is true. The story of the Bible is about the one true and living God rescuing and delivering fallen and sinful men and women like you and me from eternal death in hell by sending his one and only most beloved son to earth. If it is your sins that Jesus coming into the world as a baby, his amazing life, his shocking death, and his even more shocking resurrection from the dead is where the story of the Bible reaches its climax, then you're exactly right. But as you all know, because I'm sure you all read stories, it is the rising tension of the story that helps us to appropriately take in the meaning of the story's climax. So yes, I'm I'm taking us backward to Exodus so that Lord willing, we can more fully appreciate what happened with the arrival of the savior of the world. The truth is, is that Moses' birth helps us to understand Jesus' birth and what Christmas is all about. Jesus' birth, Christmas, is all about the arrival of the promised deliverer and king. 
Christmas is all about what this deliverer would accomplish through his life, death, and resurrection from the grave. However, Jesus' birth, as you may know from Matthew's gospel, it was fraught with danger. He was born into a hostile and deadly environment. A ruthless king sought to take his life. How had the world, once so beautifully created in holiness, and love and peace, how did it come to be so filled with darkness and danger and death? This morning, we're going to compare and contrast Jesus' birth story and Moses' birth story with the hopes of deepening our appreciation of the arrival of God's final deliverer, Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Uh, while you're turning there or powering up to there, uh, let me just briefly set the scene for the opening of the book of Exodus. And I really would encourage you to open your Bibles because we're going to be looking at the text a lot and I don't want you to be bored. You will be helped to follow along by looking at God's word with us together. The way that the second book of the Bible, Exodus, opens, makes it profoundly clear that we are reading the continuation of a story already begun in Genesis. The name that we know the book by Exodus comes from the central event in the book, God rescuing the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. The actual Hebrew name of the book has to do with uh, this phrase, and these are the names, that's how you would translate it in English, um, which are the opening words of the book, as you can see there in verse 1. You remember how um, Matthew's tale of the true coming of the Christ began? It began with a, a long list of names, that genealogy. Matthew opens his book with a, a list of names, and both the openings of Matthew and Exodus remind us that they're connecting up to a story already in progress. We're going to study Exodus chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, under four headings. The multiplication of God's people, the affliction of God's people, the preservation of God's people, and the deliverer of God's people. And I'll repeat each of those points as we're making our way through the text, like this. Let's begin with the multiplication of God's people. And as we do, read or follow along as I read Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Exodus chapter 1, beginning there in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Exodus is but one portion of a larger history of God's care for the people of Israel, and part of the larger story of bringing a deliverer into this world. That's what these verses reveal. How? Well, who is the family that we read about in the first five verses of Exodus? This family is becoming, as they multiply, the nation or the people of Israel. Where did they come from? In Genesis chapter 12, God called a pagan man, Abram, to follow him. A few chapters later, God actually tells Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham, that he will have a great number of descendants, almost too numerous 
to count. And as Genesis unfolds, we meet the offspring of Abraham, and the book follows that family line. And Abraham's wife gives birth to Isaac, and Isaac's wife gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob then has these 12 sons that we see listed there in verses 2 to 4. And what we're seeing in verses 1 to 5 are the beginnings of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, that his offspring would be numerous. And when we think of the opening of Matthew's gospel and Jesus' birth story, we can't be all that surprised to see a long list of names, some of which are even mentioned here in Exodus. And that long list in Matthew, which includes the names of Jacob and Judah, remind us of several things. First, that Jesus' birth is connected to this story that we're reading about here in Exodus. It also reminds us that God did indeed give Abraham a great many descendants. And the following verses in Exodus do contain joy as they reveal God keeping his promises, though not without obstacles. Notice that the language of verse 6 sounds something of a transition in the happy prosperity of the people of Israel. There's life, but what else is there? There's death. But as verse 7 begins, it is clear that this obstacle will not hold God back from bringing his promises to pass. Look at verse 7 again. But the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That's language that we've heard earlier in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with their offspring. Here in Exodus, we see the people of Israel taking up the mandate that God gave in the garden and fulfilling it. What can we learn from these verses? Well, first we learn that the past is not insignificant. In fact, the past is incredibly significant. The history of the people of Israel tells them who they are, and it tells them who they will be. From their past, they know that they will be a people who are continually loved by God and led by God. The past for the people of Israel is a great ground of hope. And Christian, the past is part of your great ground of hope too. And here I'm not simply talking about what has transpired throughout your lifetime, though that is significant. And portions of your past may offer glimmers of hope for the future. More specifically, I'm talking about the promises of God made even before your birth. The people of Israel here in Exodus 1 are banking on promises made to them in the past before their births. Similarly, that is what Christians rest all of their hopes on. Your hope is based in God. And in his promise, God's promise to send a son to cancel the record of debt that your sins incurred. Your hope is based on God having fulfilled that promise too. The point of verses 1 to 7 here in Exodus 1 is that God is fulfilling his promise to prosper the children of Abraham, to make them a great nation. And what we learn about God is obvious in these verses. He is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And this is a great comfort to us. Every promise he has made to us, he will answer with a yes and he will bring to pass. We've considered how God has kept his promises to the people of Israel and how they've multiplied under his care. But in verse 8, we're introduced to a powerful individual who possesses or who poses a threat to God's promises. Turn with me and read Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 to 14, as we consider this second point, the affliction of God's people. The affliction of God's people. 
Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Whoops. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Verse 8 introduces to us the one who threatens to at least curtail, if not reverse, the fulfillment of God's promise to make the children of Abraham into a great nation. God promised Abraham that he would prosper his people and and that they would face affliction. Listen to Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then the Lord Yahweh said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted. For 400 years. This new Pharaoh and king seems to be taking up the role of afflicting God's people as promised. Pharaoh, we're told, did not know Joseph. While serving a previous king, Joseph had predicted that a seven-year famine would take place. And so he encouraged the Egyptians to save and store food during the plentiful years for the famine. And when the famine came... The people of Egypt were preserved because of God's work through Joseph. In fact, God's work through Joseph in part made Egypt the great and powerful nation that it was. People from all over came to Egypt and purchased food from them, thereby expanding the riches of Egypt. This new Pharaoh might might not know this history, or perhaps it is equally likely that he chose to ignore this history. He may have willfully chosen not to remember and know how God had dealt kindly with Egypt through Joseph and the people of Israel. And notice that Pharaoh's concern in verses 9 and 10 is that the people of Israel are too many and too mighty. And part of Pharaoh's concern seems to be that of a military threat. He's concerned that the people of Israel may turn against Egypt and destroy The prominence and power that Egypt had in the world. Prominence and power which God had given them. Pharaoh's fear of man is deep. And it's also deadly. As the New Testament opens, push your mind ahead a little bit now to Matthew. The birth of Jesus takes place in a strikingly similar context as that of the birth of Moses. While the people of Israel in the first century were not technically enslaved by the Romans at the time of Jesus' birth, what is not in doubt is that they were under strenuous economic oppression from the Roman government. Rome stationed soldiers throughout the land and ruled with an iron fist. Herod was a brilliant but brutal dictator. He and other Roman rulers had frequently squashed Jewish uprisings and movements. And just like Pharaoh, Herod, too, was afraid. His fear of man was also deep and deadly. Pharaoh, 
Let his fear govern and guide his decisions. Pharaoh's fear of man, his fear of the people of Israel, led him to cruelty. Just look at some of the language that's used there in verses 11 to 14 to describe how Pharaoh deals with the people of Israel in response to his fear. Pharaoh, he sets taskmasters over the people to afflict them with heavy burdens. He has the people of Israel oppressed. He makes their lives bitter with hard surface. He deals ruthlessly with them and makes them serve as slaves. And those last two phrases are actually repeated for emphasis through enslavement, Pharaoh has the people of Israel build for him these, these store cities, which would often house wealth or weapons. In the case of wealth, they would often store grain or oil or wine for trading with other nations. And in the case of weapons, they would typically set these cities on the borders of the empire so that should war break out, they have weapons readily available to them for troops to move quickly to the border cities and be well supplied there. These cities were a mark of the prosperity and power of Egypt, something which Pharaoh wanted to protect, but became increasingly concerned about as the number of Israelites increased. Similarly, the taxes that Herod in the first century and the Romans levied on the people of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth were used for his massive building projects. Rulers can control a lot of what people or a group of people can do through economic oppression. And both Herod and Pharaoh didn't want to lose control. In the case of Pharaoh, he determined the best way to maintain control over Israel was to make them slaves. Pharaoh's desire to control the people of Israel through slavery reveals his fear of them. Now this happens in our lives, doesn't it? Doesn't our fear of man lead us to want to kind of control people? Sure, we don't enslave them in the terms that we see here in Exodus 1, but we do pursue our own means of control. We want to control the, the information that others have about us because we're fearful of how they might perceive us and what ramifications that might have on our relationship with them. I mean, there's a reason that we don't post absolutely everything on our social media profiles, right? Fear of man is quite simply, uh, it, it's, it's simple. It's allowing our fear or awe of others to, to govern our decisions and actions. And people are not meant to have that kind of place in our lives. God is meant to have that kind of place. Our fear and awe of God and his sovereignty should govern our decisions and actions. Fear of man often does not stop merely at controlling kind of the, the information. It doesn't stop merely at controlling another person's perception of you. It often moves beyond and seeks personal gain. Pharaoh didn't merely endeavor to control the people of Israel through slavery. No, he used the control he had over them to bring gain and prosperity to himself and to Egypt. Our attempts to control the perceptions that others have about us often result in the pursuit of personal gain. I'm going to tell you this so that you give me that. You know, here the irony is that we we want not merely to be liked, but we actually want to be honored. We fear man. Another irony of Pharaoh's enslavement of the people of Israel is that he was actually a slave. Do you understand that? Pharaoh was a slave. 
he was a slave to his fear. And I think that this points to the spiritual slavery that we all have. Our fear of man points to our spiritual slavery. Our fear, really seen in all mankind, that we have been enslaved to ever since the first man, Adam, sinned back in Genesis 3. Now, you may kind of scoff at the idea that you can be a slave to sin, but honestly reflect within your own mind for a moment, your own heart. Remember how you often kind of return to doing that same thing again? I don't want to do that again. And yet you, you do it again. Why do we return to doing those things that we do not want to do? Remember how you fight so hard and you feel so weak. Remember how you give in and then you find yourself disappointed again. You feel and know the bitterness of your sin. You feel and know it's, it's burden, it's weight. And what you may be reluctant to admit is that you're a slave. Friend, you and everyone else here this morning needs a deliverer. Just like the people of Israel needed a deliverer in their slavery. Our fear of man and our other sins reveal that we need to be set free from our slavery to sin. Just like the people of Israel needed to be set free from their physical slavery. Pharaoh's fear of man threatened the welfare of the people of Israel, but in the midst of the darkness of Pharaoh's fear of man, we see hope, don't, don't we? Read, read verse 12 again. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Whoops. Right? Pharaoh didn't get what he wanted. He wanted to contain them. But the more he oppressed them, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad, and the more the Egyptians were in dread of them. That verse is meant to tell us that Pharaoh could not stop God from keeping his promise to prosper his people. All of his planned affliction would serve God's purpose to prosper his people and bring them deliverance. God ordained that his people would be afflicted so that they might grow and see that nothing can hold back his promises. Christian, what do you think God might be doing in your affliction? Do you think he might be growing you? Do you think he might be teaching you to trust him? God does things in our affliction. He uses them to grow us and to bring himself glory. Verse 12, it shows us who will be the ultimate victor in this fight that's actually about to break out between God and Pharaoh. God will win. He will deliver his people. And now let's turn to our third point, the preservation of God's people. Read with me verses 15 to 20 of Exodus chapter 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shephur and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill them. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Can you believe the Bible talks about these kinds of things? When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill them. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? 
The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, insult, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And they, people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. More multiplication. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Well, here in these verses, 15 to 22, Pharaoh tries to put an end to the fulfillment of God's promises through murder. In verses 15 to 21, we see that Pharaoh instructed midwives to kill any sons who were born to the people of Israel. And in verse 22, we see that he instructed all Egyptians to be involved in the killing of the sons of Israel. Now, proportionally speaking, very few names are recorded in the book of Exodus. We're not given the name of this Pharaoh who plays a central role in the book, but we are given the names of these women. Now, many commentators note that it's probably because of Moses' approval upon their actions. We're told that these midwives, they feared God and did not commit infanticide as Pharaoh had commanded them. Their fear of God led them to choose life for these sons of Israel. And here were the people of Israel being obedient to God his creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And here we see Pharaoh standing in clear opposition to God's command. And therefore in opposition to God himself. The life that God created in these mothers, Pharaoh wanted to snuff out. Pharaoh's fear of man shifted from controlling the people of Israel and using them for gain to controlling the population. Putting babies to death is nothing less than an attempt to remove the image of God from the face of this earth. It is an offensive display of hatred toward God. We're told that the midwives to whom Pharaoh gave this wicked command, they feared God. They, unlike Pharaoh, knew that God was to be feared above man. When they, dis- when they disobeyed Pharaoh, they stood under the threat of death. They embodied their, in their fear of God, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus said, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. When Pharaoh's plot was foiled, he, caused the, he called these women in for questioning. And some have wondered whether the midwives lied to Pharaoh. Very few come, on down, come down on this issue with, uh, with great clarity. And I'm just going to go ahead and leave it as murky as Moses left it. The focus of the text is not on whether or not these women misled Pharaoh. Their interaction with Pharaoh is simply reported. The focus of the text is not on their response to Pharaoh, but on their fear of God. It's given emphasis multiple times. And, and how their fear of God showed itself in its disobedience to Pharaoh. The Lord dealt graciously with these midwives because they feared God above Pharaoh. God did not show them favor for their response to Pharaoh, but rather for their fear of God. Read verse 21 again. Do you see it? And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, this is a very interesting statement, but it's a very, very interesting statement if, in fact, these women were Hebrew women, right? They were commissioned by Pharaoh to be agents of death, and yet they were commissioned by God to be those who preserve and give life. They helped the number of Israelites 
to increase. Do you remember what was said about the wise men in Matthew's gospel? Herod planned to use them as kind of his proxy to locate Jesus, this newborn king, this one who had been born king of the Jews. His motives were precisely like Pharaoh's motives. Pharaoh wanted to use these women for his purposes. It became uh, evident later that he, that he sought to kill all the Hebrew children in that region. Uh, the wise men did not comply with Herod's request to bring him word. and said, they, they, what did they do? They worshipped the newborn king and obeyed the word of the Lord in their dream not to return to Herod. See, Jesus' life was protected and preserved by their actions to a degree. And the actions of Mary and Joseph when they fled to Egypt for safety. Turning our minds back to Egypt in Exodus 1, these Hebrew midwives, Shephura and Pua, stand as examples, I think, to Christians. They embody what Christians are to do. Should the government seek to coerce behavior which stands in direct contradiction to God's law? The regular disposition of a Christian is to honor those whom God has placed in authority over us. But in the history of the world, there have been occasions upon which, and there will likely be future occasions upon which, Christians have to conscientiously decide to obey God over and against their earthly rulers. More generally speaking, Shafura and Pua stand as examples to Christians as how their whole lives are really to be oriented, fearing God and entrusting their lives to him each and every day. What does it mean to fear God? It means to know how powerful, loving, and holy he is, and living in light of that knowledge. In verse 22, we're told that Pharaoh makes one final attempt to put an end to the births of the sons of Israel. Read verse 22 again. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live you see there, Pharaoh, he commissions all of Egypt to be involved with the murder of the sons of Israel. But even this proposition fails. Pharaoh is not going to win this battle with God. For as we'll see in the next few verses, Hebrew sons continue to be born, and one is even brought right into Pharaoh's house. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we meet the son of who will be the deliverer of God's people. This is our fourth point, the deliverer of God's people. Read Exodus chapter two, verses one to 10 now. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him, and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She called him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Well, the deliverer has arrived. And in these verses, we're introduced to Moses, who, will, who God will later use to free his people from slavery in Egypt. The significance uh, of noting that Moses' parents were both from the house of Levi shows us that Moses was a Hebrew through and through. He was qualified to serve as a priest and a mediator of God's people, which would be his calling as he led Israel out of Egypt. And as we've been thinking about, Moses is born into an amazingly difficult context, isn't he? And he would not have survived if he had not been delivered by Pharaoh's daughter. The threat of death is hanging over his life when he's born. And we're told that Moses was hidden for three months until his mother could hide him no longer. And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us in chapter 11, verse 23, that even this hiding was actually an act of faith. As babies grow, so does the volume of their cry, as young parents can attest to. We're told Moses was a fine child, which at least means he was healthy and probably had a vigorous cry. So moms, just remember when your baby is crying, this is a fine child the Lord has given me. Pray, he will give you strength. Persevere, sister. This uh, act of hiding in a basket amongst the reeds was a further attempt to continue to hide Moses from the Egyptians. Moses' sister, probably Miriam, who we meet more in Exodus, was standing nearby, is watching, caring for her brother. According to Old Testament scholars, the, the word for basket that we see here in verse 3 is probably better translated ark. So Moses, because he's the human author of Exodus, probably intends to point yet again to God's providential care for his people. He protected Noah and his family in the ark. And here we see God protecting Moses in this little ark. The irony of this passage is rich, isn't it? Moses is put into the river. He's put into the river. The river, of course, is the very place that Moses should die. Should an Egyptian find him? And yet it's where his mother hides him. She's hopeful that the, the reeds of the river will preserve him from sight and sound. But his little ark encounters one who is under a royal decree to put him to death. And yet something else happens. In verses 5 to 9, we discover that baby Moses comes into the hands of Pharaoh's own daughter. And rather than plunging this Hebrew son into the water, rather than obeying her father, she, like the Hebrew midwives, disobeys. It's amazing. Rather than being hard and severe, we find her to be soft and compassionate. She delivers Moses. She draws him up out of the water. She delivers him from the threat of death at the very place he's to die. Ironic, isn't it? That the one who will deliver Israel must first actually himself be delivered. We're told in verse 4 that Moses' sister, she's standing nearby. She sees this wonderful response of compassion from Pharaoh's daughter. And then she does something unthinkable, bold. 
She, a slave, speaks to a member of the royal family. And as a reader, you almost wonder that it's if at this point it's going to click in, in the, the mind of Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, I'm, I'm holding a Hebrew child, a boy even. What am I supposed to do with him? But she agrees to her suggestion. She agrees to her suggestion and she, she saves Moses. She sends her to find a nurse for this newborn son of Israel. And in a remarkable turn of events, the mother who was seeking to hide her son from the Egyptians discovers that she is given a royal commission to hide, to keep and protect her son, to care for him, to raise him, and to do all of this under royal protection and pay. We can't help but see God's sovereign hand in this work of protecting and preserving his chosen servant, Moses. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. And Christian, just watch all of the details that God is involved with every step of the way and remember that he knows all of those details in your life too. He is watching over you. And when we read verse 10 there, we joyfully discover that Moses survived the threat of death. Read verse 10 again. It's a wonderful verse. When the child grew up, there's the survival. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. When Moses was weaned, his biological mother brought him to his adoptive mother. Not only in verse 10 are we told that Moses survives Pharaoh's threat of death, but we're also told that he's given a name. And remember, naming in the scriptures is very significant. The names given to the persons in the scriptures often describe or foreshadow something of their character, their future. In the scriptures, the act of naming itself uh, the giving of the name often denotes kind of belonging. Because Moses belongs to Pharaoh's daughter by virtue of her finding him and delivering him from death, she has the right to name him. And she named him Moses, which means to draw out. And she named him that because she drew him out of the water, we see there. And God would later use Moses to draw his people out of slavery in Egypt through what? Through water. You can't help but see God pointing out his work of saving this son of Israel in his name. And you can't help but see God pointing forward to the work that he would do through his son, Jesus, in the future. Now, let's just step back for a moment and take in kind of the, the grand picture of things here. It's presented to us. God is bigger than any man on the face of the earth. And he always has been. You need not fear man. No man can thwart God's purposes. No one can stop God's promises. God preserved the sons of Israel until the fullness of time had come. When the right time had come, he sent Moses, his deliverer, to the people of Israel to free them from slavery and bondage. And in the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we learn that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. In thwarting Pharaoh's plot to kill the sons of Israel, God kept his promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he promised that the seed of the woman would one day crush the serpent's head. And in thwarting Pharaoh's plot to kill the sons of Israel, God kept his promise of Genesis 12 and 15, when he promised Abraham that his offspring 
would bless many nations. Like Moses, Jesus was born into a context where there was a mad ruler named Herod who sought to kill all the sons of Israel who were born in Bethlehem. Where, ironically, do you remember where Joseph and Mary fled to? They went to Egypt. Eventually, like Israel, God called his son, Jesus, out of Egypt. But he did not call his son out of Egypt to preserve him from death, but to put him to death. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, if you may. Consider what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 to 7. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a what? A slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In verse 7, Paul says that those who believe in his son Jesus are no longer slaves, but sons. And if you're here this morning and you haven't begun to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, then friend, this is what we desperately want you to hear this Christmas. You wouldn't know it from all of the decorations and the lights and the joy-filled music, but Christmas is in part about being set free from slavery, slavery to sin. It's about being delivered from the chains of sin and death. And I want you to know this morning that you can have true joy this Christmas. You can have a joy that will not fade away at the end of the Christmas sinners is acceptable in God's sight. In other words, through Jesus' death, we know that he is God's final deliverer. And now God calls all of us, through repentance and faith, to be his sons and daughters. And Dear friend, let me encourage you to turn from your sin and to put your faith in Jesus. He can deliver you. You don't have to live as a slave any longer. You can live as a son as a child of God, as an heir of heaven with Jesus. Christian, rejoice that you are an adopted child of God. You are no longer a slave to sin, and God promises to preserve you to the end. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says that we're heirs through God. The scriptures tell us that we will reign with Christ for all eternity. We will pass through death but only to enter eternity, to reign with Christ. Until Christ calls you home, or until he comes again, we need to treasure all of these things in our hearts. And this is where I want us to conclude. In this Christmas season, and in every season, we need to treasure the truth that our God keeps his promises. He promised that he would Send a deliverer to defeat the serpent. And he has in Jesus Christ. In this Christmas season, 
and in every season, we need to know that affliction may come, but that God's determination to see his people safely home to heaven will not be thwarted. In this Christmas season and in every season, we need to remember that Jesus Christ was born to deliver us from the chains of sin and death. Every every graveyard that you drive by proves that Satan is a liar. He says, you will not surely die. But there are graves filled with the dead. But those graves where believers lie will also be the place of Jesus' victory over Satan as well on the last day. Drive by a graveyard, call Satan a a liar, and tell him that Jesus is going to turn that place of defeat into a place of victory. And believe that Jesus will raise you from the dead too. In this Christmas season and in every season, we need to look forward to his return, his next advent, where his grand deliverance will be fully and finally complete. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are indeed a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. We give you thanks for how Moses' birth, his deliverance from the hands of a cruel ruler, and yet how he would future in the future deliver your people. We give you thanks for how that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and about how he has come to set your people free. Father, we pray and ask that you would encourage and grow and enlarge our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this day and every day until you call us home. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.